0: This is the next to the last message out of this uh, signs series out of the Gospel of John. We've been looking at the signs of Jesus everywhere he was and what he did in those events. The reason I did that is not to have a clever uh, sermon series. My concept is the more we get to know who Jesus is, what he does, what he is capable of doing, you could begin to reveal the condition, what, his heart, what was heart, what was he drawn to, what did he reject, what power did he manifest in, in human need. I wanted us to get a better understanding of who this Jesus is, because I think if we do, the more we know him, the more we will find ourselves on our knees before him, like many of the songs here today, declaring who God is. His unlimited power, his love for us, when we don't even love ourselves, is an awesome God. Vicky and I, in 2000, started a church, a mission church, out of Ridgecrest. <clears throat> Pastor, Pastor Hosey commissioned us to go down to the southwest growth uh, side of Springfield in order to plant a church in that region to try to reach the southwest growing corner. And when we started it, if you'll know, Nixa was the fastest growing county in Missouri at the time that we went to start that. And When we first started, there was a, a lady, a young lady, 55, 60. Amen? All right. <clears throat> there was a young lady named Cheryl. Cheryl was probably one of the most Christ-like people that I had ever, I've ever met. Cheryl would come to, never come to church by herself. She was always going and picking up people and bringing them with her because she needed help to unload the back of her car, which was full of all kinds of food, literally set up these big tables of food by herself, wasn't a budgeted thing, she just, from the church, that was just what she wanted to do. She set up this breakfast thing for everybody that would come into this newly forming church and Literally never came without a car full of people that she found and picked up and brought with her to church and uh, just one of those ladies, you know, that you just love to death. I'm guessing she's uh, in that 55-60 range at the time. Uh, she had been a smoker in her earlier days. She was a picture of health at this point. And yet we got the report back shortly after that that Cheryl had lung cancer. We as a church, as you all know, we're kind of devastated when you hear somebody like that about somebody you love so so much and meant so much to us. I remember the night that their daughter called me, because it was a couple of years later. Daughter called me at night, I think it was about bedtime, and said, Mark, if you can come up to the hospital, you need to come up, because they're not giving mom very much time. So... Jumped in the car and ran up to, to the hospital. Got to the room where she's at. and All the families around. And uh, there would be people there. And she had enough energy at that moment to uh, introduce me. She said, this is my pastor. And, and introduced me to some family and friends that didn't come. Her husband didn't go to church at that time. and So we were there. And as, what's fascinating about it, we were within the last hour of her life. And everybody kind of knew that. So we're all around the bedside, and every time Cheryl would speak something, everybody would just kind of lean in, and you know why, right? You're getting, if we're getting the last words spoken from a life, you want to pay attention, because you know something needs to be said, and they're trying to say that. Well, the reason I tell you that story, it's a true story, it gets to my heart even as I speak it to you. This is the picture of the passage we're in today in John chapter 15. We're going to spend two weeks in John 15 in the signs of Jesus. It's going to help you understand the weight of this passage by setting it up with that story. Jesus right in this passage is speaking some of the last words that he's going to be sharing with his disciples. The very last part. So everybody's leaning in to hear what he has to say. And it's his final message as we can see in scripture to, the, to his disciples. It was the night to set up the scene. It was the night before Judas was going to betray him. By dusk the following day he would have been stretched on a cross, stripped of his clothes, beaten, bloody, and pierced. And his life was at the ebbing away at the very end. That's the message that we're looking at today. That's why I'm calling you to lean in and listen to these words because they're very significant. He knew that the words he was about to say would be echoing in the minds of his disciples up until our day because when I read you this story, you're going to know it and it's had impact on you in, before this. These final words would lead his, his disciples, his followers. Listen, I'm going to try to show you how drastically this changed the disciples when they heard this particular message. It just flipped their reality around. Before, he had spoken in parables and stories. This was the last time, and he was trying to lay the foundation of what it meant to be a Christ follower in front of his people. Here's the scene behind the passage. The disciples are in an um, upper room probably a fairly small home in an upper room with Jesus. They were sitting around a table, and in the Eastern style, that means they didn't have a, a high table and chairs. It would be a low table with pillows around the table, and they would be leaning or sitting on the pillows. And each of them had an, some kind of a sense of how significant that night was to be. And so they were all facing Jesus when this story was given. If you smell. You can smell carefully. That there was the roasted lamb. You could smell the bread. That had been cooked. Because they were getting ready to celebrate. The Passover meal. If you've all gone. Have you all gone through the Jewish understanding of Passover. And what each of the elements mean. Well that's what they were doing that night. They were getting ready to retell the story of how God delivered Israel out of Egypt, brought them from bondage into a land that he had designed for them. So you can almost smell the food in the house. You can kind of see set the scene. Thousands of people were in Jerusalem that night. Many had come from far, uh, far away to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem with family and friends and there was a buzz going around at this particular Passover because they had started hearing about this man named Jesus and how he was doing things normal humans were, were not able to do. He heard, they've heard of him feeding 5,000 men with that small piece of fish and bread. They've heard that he could put mud, remember, on a blind man And that blind man's now walking around town telling what Jesus, they've heard about this one that may be the Messiah. So there was a big new buzz because we've been looking for this Messiah. The Jews had been looking for the Messiah for hundreds of years. And this is a possibility. So I think that message was being uh, spoken at many tables that night. And all the people around the table with Jesus had been with him now for three years. Some of them fairly skeptical of who he is. Really? Is he the Messiah? Is this the one? But after three years talking with him, walking with him, watching him do the things that he did, preach the word that he did, uh, teach the parables that he did, touch the blind, the lame, the leper, and all of those healed, all of these disciples here were fully convinced this is the Messiah. They were fully, fully committed. But do you understand what their thought was of what the Messiah was going to be at that time? See, they thought he was going to come in and eventually ride in on a white horse, being a military man, and he was going to lead Israel to beat all of the enemies. They thought Rome was going to fall under this man. They thought under this man we are now no longer going to have to struggle so much because he's going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the mighty warrior. And so they were excited about a whole new vision coming upon the land a conquering hero. They were probably kind of giddy with excitement that night to hear what Jesus was going to say. It's that environment, it's that scene. In John 13, it says these words, and the supper being ended, Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took up a towel, girded his loins, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he had girded. Now, I need you to understand. Do you understand their thought is that a military conqueror was coming, king and they, they're really kind of beginning to get freaked out right here because he's now on his knees rubbing the grime from beneath their toes. I think the talking stopped and they're going to get nervous and uncomfortable. What's he doing? What is this? Tomorrow he's supposed to be the king, but tonight he's taking the role of a slave, of a servant, a house servant. What is this? Then it began, to, it began to sink in a little further. He says, after a little while longer, the world will see me no more. Oh, my goodness, that rules out a public triumph. He said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Wait a minute. I thought you were to be the ruler of this world. What are you saying, Jesus? Jesus. Each word I think Jesus spoke brought more and more emotional devastation among this around the table. They went from being giddy to their mouth was open and they're saying, so What is happening? I think they started feeling weak. They started feeling vulnerable and they started looking at Jesus now kind of with some disbelief, some maybe even mistrust. And I can almost sense fear rising up in their heart. They begin sinking down into a level of anxiety that we get to when we think Jesus isn't there. And it's in that moment Jesus said, I want you to get up and go with me. And they went on a little journey. I can see them going down the stairs. You can tell the emotional condition of these guys at this point. They're going down the stairs. And then Jesus takes them through a little alleyway of Jerusalem where there was a small orchard at a house nearby. Just outside the house was a small orchard. And Jesus stopped with those guys walking behind him, kind of bewildered. And he stopped at the vine and he stopped at this vineyard, a small vineyard. And he's about to say something that changed everything. He's about to explain the foundational truth that life, true life is fruitful. Would you stand with me as we read John 15? Verse one, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off, I marked that, every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, I marked that, so that it will... Be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am, I marked it, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear, and I mark this, much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Here's the key. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. We hear that, we just don't believe it. To This is to my Father's glory, and I mark this, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You may be seated. Did you see it? Did you hear what he was saying? What's the, the significance of this little passage? The entirety of our Christian life is about this, bearing much fruit. That's the purpose of our life here, is bearing much fruit. In this part, the Lord is trying to show us how we are to thrive and flourish and be effective in our Christian life, in our private lives, in our home life in our financial life, in all parts of our life, the Lord wanted his people to produce a fruit that is overwhelming for your own self and for the people around you. Now let's look at what Jesus did not put into um, his hand when he was teaching about this fruitfulness. Notice he did not have money in his hand. He didn't say the one who has the most money is the most fruitful, he didn't say that. Uh, uh, Money was not in his hand. He didn't have a map of Jerusalem and the surrounding area that the army, uh, angel armies of God could use to destroy that land and to set up his kingdom. It was, he didn't have that map. He didn't have a popularity magazine and say, if you're, if you're fruitful for the kingdom, then you'll be famous and they'll put you in these magazines. He didn't have that. You know what he had his hand when they were walking down that little alley in Jerusalem? He put his hand on top of a, a vine, a grapevine. And when I think vine, I'm thinking small things, but a grapevine is actually the main plant that comes out of the ground. And they usually keep it cut off about four feet, roughly this this size. And on the top of the vine is this, have you ever seen it? It's kind of a gnarly looking thing at the top. And out of the top is what grew the branches. And if you'll know, they'll put out a lot of branches and they'll shoot, and then the gardener will take those branches and tie it up along the trellis, these fences that they have to keep them off the ground to keep it able to produce fruit. And that's what he says, I am this. I am this vine that's coming out of the ground. Everything of life is gonna flow through me. All the quality of this grape is gonna come from me because I'm the root system for your life. You've got to, he said, stay connected to this vine or you will not be able to produce much fruit with your life. You'll be ineffective. You'll find yourself sitting in a church and making no impact upon yourself, your family, your your church, your community, your neighborhood. You'll find yourself just fruitless with an empty basket. And it's frustrating. You can, now we can learn to try to be satisfied with that, but God put it within us. God put this message within us that we are to be people of a fruit basket that's overflowing. He put that in us. So you'll know, as the Lord is teaching and speaking today into your heart, if you are the kind of people that's producing a healthy amount of fruit. He said, I am the vine. Life comes from it. He says, the father, God the father is the vine dresser. He is the gardener who's out there in in that field working on the grapes. The vine dresser's work is simple. He simply goes to each branch and tries to coach out of that branch the greatest amount of fruit. He works all that he does, everything that he does is about to get that branch to bear a whole bunch of fruit. So he'll work with them. He works with them all the time trying to get them to be the best. He says, you, you're the branch. I'm the branch. His goal for us is fruitfulness, massive fruitfulness. Why would Jesus talk in such detail about growing grapes when he was only hours away from being put on the cross? Why would he do this? I think he's trying to show us a new way possibly of looking at things. First of all, we need to know what fruit is. What is this fruit that we're supposed to be producing out of our life? Now fruit is very similar in scripture to good works. For example, I'll read out of John three fourteen. Let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. So there's a connection here to being involved in the work of the kingdom on a daily basis, a moment-by-moment moment basis of where we, are, uh, we give up the rights of our life for that day, and that's hard because we all get up more likely, have some kind of an agenda. We're going to do this, 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 and this, and this, and don't get in my way because I'm on my agenda. But there's a possibility. This is why we have to be careful. There's a possibility that on that journey today, instead of getting to the agenda, God's plan was for you to be sidetracked by that need. Why? Remember last week, so that when we address a need in the name of the Lord, we, we give ourselves to meet need around us, that the glory of God is in that place revealed. Glory being light. Something happens from his kingdom on this earthly kingdom when we do that. Like Jesus, when he healed the blind man last week, remember, we talked about the mud, put it on his eyes. When Jesus healed the mind, blind man, if you'll remember, Jesus said, nobody sinned here. This is for God's glory. When he did this healing, he said, I, this man is in this condition to reveal God's power. People in the uh, afflicted areas of our country right now, Florida, Texas, the upper, uh, the west, are all saying that about 80% of all food, all rescue volunteer workers, all of them come from the body of Christ in America. They're, they're coming in, driving in from all over the place, hauling food, hauling water, hauling, and it comes from the body of Christ. What does that do? The glory of the Lord is revealed. Even when the communication systems of our world, I believe, tries to hide that, It is real and everybody's seeing that. Hamlin, I think providing shoes, Terry, to Bowerman is an opportunity for every time you put a shoe on one of those kids, a little bit of the glory of the Lord is revealed. I believe that's true. Hamlin took care of some needs of uh, some church family this week. Some of our deacons cleared brush from a, a family that needed a little help with that. Some other deacons yesterday morning uh, met with Vanna to help load boxes from her house into a moving van. I think every one of those a little bit of the glory is revealed. A church is fruitful when it sacrifices its energy, time, and finances to meet so that meet needs so that God's glory can be revealed in community. Most churches the numbers of uh, the national numbers of the church in America reveal kind of maybe a, as a peek into how fruitful we are at times. On average, most churches, about 5, 10 to 15% of the people bring a tithe to the Lord. Another 5% bring some kind of a gift to the Lord. And so about 80% normally don't bring anything. So they're, not, they're missing the Malachi blessing. Of the window open from heaven, so there is a there's a, there would be a huge chance of a chance of a much bigger blessing on the church, if we just practice the simple instruction of the word to bring the first to the Lord. So then I'll multiply the rest of it, and I'll, it'll meet all your needs. But we don't trust that too much. On average, they will say pastors will tell you that thirty percent of the church does 100% of the work of the church, on average in the churches. I'll tell you, I think Hamlin's way above that because I could take a list, I didn't today, but I could probably go from 180 to 200 people that are actively involved, sharing, serving, doing something within the body of Christ. So instead of 30%, I bet we're 60 plus percent. So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to have a body that works like that. What if we had 100% fruitful? What would our uh, ministries look like? They'd be full and overflowing. Our ministry funds would be so um, uh, immense that we would be unlimited by the impact we could have in our communities. What if if we were uh, fruitful to the maximum? We would have people every week out into our neighborhoods loving on community, taking care of needs, and in that they would be talking, leading people to the Lord. We'd come in here, we'd not only have to borrow a baptistry, we'd have to build one in permanently right here because we'd be baptizing them every week. If 100% fruitfulness was, a, was evidence in our life, it'd be kind of like this basket of grapes overflowing. Large grapes and overflowing. And once you've had that and you know that's what God desires, When you know Jesus chose us to produce fruit like that, when we know that Jesus expects us to produce fruit like that, when we know deep inside we desire to produce fruit like that, and we have a half-full ministry somewhere, a half-full small group, a half-full children's ministry, a half-full student ministry, a half-full financial support, a half-hearted effort in reaching our neighborhood, half full in God's kingdom is not fruitfulness. I mean, it has some fruit, but it's small, and there's not much. That puts something in our heart that, I mean, something's not right. We gotta, there's something gotta change in me. So we've looked at external fruits, but you know there's also internal fruits. You know this. In Psalm 1-3, it says this. A righteous man will be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in season. Whose leaf does not wither. They don't quit. They don't weaken. They don't fall out. They don't stop. And whatever they do prospers. You know some people like that? I do. In this church family. I know. I can see you. Everything you touch. You, if I put, if you happen to be associated with a ministry, it's going to happen If you do, it's just because there is a fruitfulness that flows in people. There are inner fruits, there are emotional type of fruits that happen. You know it in Galatians, chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. You're going to know some people that love you. They may not even know you well, but you know when you meet them, they love you. There's joy. They're not the crankies, they're the joyful ones. There's joy because this fruitfulness of the spirit is flowing in them. There is love, joy, peace. If You have been around somebody who's just full of peace? You don't ever wanna leave their presence. You wanna sit up, sit on a chair beside them and hang there because everywhere else you go, it has this conflict and chaos, but this person has peace and you you wanna soak it up. You wanna be in the midst of that. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. They put up with a lot for a long time. And they do that with love and joy and peace. Kindness, they're kind. They're not mean with their words. They're not attacking people. They're not tearing down a church. They're not tearing down its worship. They're faithful, they're gentle, and they have a self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit on the inside of us. So I have to look at my basket or my life. Do I look like this or like this or like this? Jesus didn't let us into this torch-lit teaching about the vine and the branches. Just to make, listen carefully, he did not put them there to make their dreams come true. I'm going to say that again. Jesus was not teaching them at that point to try to help them have their dreams come true. He was teaching them at that point how to follow the call of God on their life. And in following him, they would bear much fruit. I hope you get the significance of that. We are to fulfill, listen, God's dream, not our dream. We're to fulfill God's dream in us, through us, for us. There are three types of people and you see the baskets in front of you. There's the vine that bears no fruit. There is the vine that bears more fruit and then there is the vine that bears much fruit. These are the truths about fruit. These are the truths about our life. I'm gonna close with this. One of the reasons life can be like this is because of a, a clog in the vine, in the branch, if I, would, if I could say. That the branch somehow is disconnected from the vine. That the life of the vine can't get through in enough energy to produce fruit. There's a friend of mine, I've changed his name to Mike. Mike, at about 50 or so, he's a miserable man. I told him, I've told him several times, you're the hardest man I've ever had to love. <clears throat> I meant it, he's the hardest man I've ever had to love. Mean, hateful, found nothing good about anybody or any situation. His children would do anything in their power to not have to be at home because they didn't want to hear it. His wife was, and he were a mess. You know, we, meet, we would meet in my office just time after time after time. And this guy was selfish, rude, mean, verbally abusive, and he could see nothing about that in himself. He couldn't see it at all. He just saw people not doing what he wants and he is, his, felt like it's his job to tell everybody how to do it. And so his kids were a mess and his family was about over. Honestly, it was about over. When I first met him, I said, I want you to take this notebook home. Had one of those just a little Notebooks, you know, line for school, and I just gave it to him. I said, what I want you to do, take this notebook home, Mike, and I want you to write in there the name of somebody that's hurt you or made you mad or whatever in your life. I want you to write their name at the top and make a list of the things that they've done to you. So the next time he came back, he came back with two notebooks. Not just one, he went and bought another one because he didn't have enough room to write down all the things that had happened. So I read and I saw a lot of pages, but I saw the, the first book was mainly his dad and his stepdad. So his dad was physically abusive, beat his mom, and as he was growing up, he could do nothing about it. And so he got hurt, he'd get mad. He could see his mom get hurt and he couldn't do it until he got to the point, got a uh, teenager enough strong enough that he stood up against his dad and said, you're not going to do it, and dad beat the snot out of him. Wasn't very much longer that he left their home, left their family divorced. A stepdad came in. I read the next pages about the stepdad, and this, this guy was no better, verbally abusive, sexually abusive to him, all kinds of things. So this, you under, I began to see what the fruit, why the fruit was so messed up out of this guy's life. I said, Mike, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to ask you to do something, and you're not going to like it. I said, you're going to have to forgive your dad, and you're going to have to forgive your stepdad. And I was right. He was mad that I would even consider that. Why would you ask me to do something like that? I said, well, there is a passage, Mike, I want you to, that has a potential, has a principle in it I need you to hear. In Matthew 6, 9 through 13, when you pray, you say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then I said, pay attention. Forgive us our debts, which is trespass, sin, missing the mark. Forgive us our sin as we have forgiven our debtors, those who've sinned against us. I said, do you see this principle here? The reason you're such a miserable man is you're unforgiven because you can't forgive. It says right here, forgive us just like we forgive. I said, you have all rights to be mad, hurt, and upset. I get it. I'm trying to talk you out of it. I'm just saying you're a miserable man. Would you like to begin, begin to be able to forgive and be forgiven? Life will change so I gave him that project I said write a write on a piece of paper write out a check like this I said so he took it this debt is owed to me by and I put a place for him to write his name for the offense of write your, what's the offense what's the value of that offense I said put some money value on it was it a hundred dollar offense was it a million dollar offense what kind of offense was it so I Gave him that. Again, he came back with a checkbook full of checks. I said, okay, here's the next step. I want you to get before God. I want you to read the passage in Matthew 18. If I had time, I'd read it. It's really important. Read Matthew 18, 21 through 35. The king, remember the guy that came to the king and owed him millions of dollars? Remember the story? And the king heard his request and forgave him. That man went out and had a, a friend of his that owed him $50. And he uh, did not take that spirit of forgiveness. He took the man and said, I'm going to put you in debtor's prison until you pay me back every dollar. They brought that man, that first man, back before the king. And the king judged him. I said, read that passage carefully. Then I want you to get on your face before God with your checkbook. And I want you to ask God to help you. And I want you to... Forgive them one by one, event by event, and then when you're done, I want you to write the word canceled debt on it. Cancel it. Then I want you to bring it, and I want you to throw it in this trash. And you're to leave it there. You're no longer, you're to take those things and relieve those people. See, the reason people hurt us, they're in that broken, damaged bondage of sin. And we will not walk free from that until we're able to forgive them And then begin to walk with the Lord. You see, one of the reasons, and I'll do two more next week, that your bucket may be empty. Is that your branch is disconnected from the vine. And I think much of it's because of unforgiveness. I'm going to ask you to consider that just a moment. You may not have thought that the pain and the unforgiveness that you've kept in your heart has been, you've been trying to hurt those other people that hurt you. But you realize today it's just killing you making you miss the entirety of the fruitfulness that God had designed for you. invitation and it's not mine it is an invitation to come and get rid of the blockage between you and the vine between you and Jesus I don't care what it is it really doesn't matter but you know what it is but I do believe by faith the Lord just says come to me if you're weak and have nothing to show and I'll make you fruitful but it takes a little bit of humility and it has to take We have to take probably an issue of how do I forgive? How can I do that? What they did is unexcusable. I'm not trying to say that. They will have to answer before the Lord, before those issues. But you will have to answer for the unforgiveness that you hold. I'm saying for yourself, if there is something that is blocking and you see it, you're a great person. You're lovely. You're effective. That's not that. But you know there's a stopping of the spirit of his flow of life through you. This is just the last time. Just stay on this song.